We hear a lot about the dark web. We hear a lot of hyperbole. We hear about the spectacular crimes, such as those committed by Russ Ulbricht. Now to that stunning arrest of the drug kingpin who goes by the name Dread Pirate Roberts, appears to have cornered the internet drug market. His real name is Ross Ulbricht, and his website, Silk Road, is packed with products like cocaine and heroin. ABC's Gio Benitez is here with all the details. Good morning, Gio. George, good morning to you. The FBI calls it the most sophisticated criminal marketplace on the internet. Thousands of drug dealers used it to sell drugs and completely hide their identity. Having a marketplace that was located on the hard-to-reach dark web, well, that wasn't new. Like most successful entrepreneurs, Ulbricht streamlined and perfected various aspects so that he could offer the sale of illegal drugs to anyone who could access the site and he made it possible for people to find his site. When Silk Road fell, it was replaced by Silk Road 2, and then by others such as Alphabay. It seems that these high-profile marketplaces were much too profitable for others not to try their hands at it as well. Of course, over time, law enforcement would find these and find new ways to intercept the administration of these sites, take them over, and arrest their owners may have taken some time, but in the end, law enforcement from around the world invariably shut these sites down and apprehended their owners. These are the headlines, but what about the day-to-day -day operations of the dark web? What really goes on there? We don't really hear enough about that. For example, there are extremists who regularly use the dark web. In a moment, we'll meet somebody who actually works on the side of good within the dark web. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Pomosi, and in this episode, I'm exploring the dark web, its history with extremism, and how new generative AI tools such as ChatGPT are poised to make things even crazier, if that's possible. I don't know about you, but I hear these tales from the dark side that drop the phrase dark web along with some creepy background music as though we all, wink wink, nod nod, understand what the dark web really is. Sure, it's a region of the internet not addressable from a common browser, a special place where bad folks tend to be found. And it's dark because it's not searchable, it's hard to find, but really, there's so much more to the story than your occasional Alphabay or Silk Road marketplace. So I wanted to find out a few things, such as what is the day-to-day -day life on the dark web even like? For that, I reached out to an expert. Hi, my name is Delilah Schwartz. I'm the product marketing manager at Cyber Six Skill. I also dabble in uh, research in the cyber criminal underground. My background is in political science, in researching extremism and digitally enabled radicalization. Delilah works for Cyber Six Gill, one of a handful of cyber threat intelligence companies that shines a light on the dark web and its various activities. So Cyber Six Gill is a cyber threat intelligence company at its core. Our foundation, our product ultimately is our data lake. We have the broadest collection of deep, dark, and clear web threat intelligence on the market. 
by virtue of our automated collection mechanism that can extract data in real time from many various different types of sources across all the different webs. We analyze this data with advanced machine learning, extract insights and entities, and with the information that we extract, we provide our customers with the earliest possible indications of risk to help them better protect against cyber attacks before they actually happen. So let's start with a definition of the dark web, as opposed to the web we use every day, either password protected or in the open. The web is more than just what we see on our web browsers. The surface web, which is essentially whatever you can find through Google or through your regular web browser, whatever sites you have access to, like your news sites, Amazon, e-commerce, etc., that is the surface web and amounts to only 4% of the internet. Beyond that, we have deep web content, which is 90% of the internet. The deep web is content that you can reach through your standard internet browsers, but it's not information that is accessible or available to all. You need some form of authentication to access it. That might be through a login or password or through a paywall or other sorts of um, authentication methods. Um, That is your private emails. It might be your bank app. It might be your Instagram direct messages, um, university uh, databases, stuff that you need specific access and authorization to get to. The dark web is another animal entirely. It amounts to 6% of the internet. It's sort of this overlay on the existing internet. You can't access it through your standard web browsers like Safari, Firefox, or Chrome. You need a specialized program web browser. The most popular one today is Tor, the Onion browser. Um, which scrambles IP, location, identity, and sort of exists as sort of a layer on top of the internet. It's not a www.websitename.com. It's a randomized strings of string of, ne- of letters and numbers. It's not searchable. It's not indexed. You need expertise to be able to navigate the sites. That said, anyone can download Tor and start with their own known dark web address. Like the early days of bulletin boards, you hear about other sites on the dark web from other people. It's not censored or uh, regulated by any sort of body. So essentially, it's a free-for-all wild west of the internet. Um, It's become a haven for those that want free speech, that are seeking to evade censorship laws. For example, in Russia recently, seen many dark websites opening by Twitter, by BBC, Facebook, to allow citizens that want free access to information the free access to that information, but it's also become a hub of cybercrime because, of course, who would want a a forum or a platform that can, you know, keep you private, anonymous, and keep your identity secret, your location secret, more than criminals? As I mentioned, there are these marketplaces for just about anything, and I do mean anything. So how large of a market is this, really? So a massive dark web economy has been expanding, expanding, expanding over the years. It's actually the third largest economy if it's measured as GDP as a country after US and China. So it's a pretty big entity. So before we get too far into this, how does one decide to become a dark web researcher? What is Delilah's background? How do you even get started? It actually wasn't because of the dark web markets. It was actually because of something else. 
so my entry path into into my company at Cybersec Skill was I was actually studying um, extremism and counterterrorism, and at the time I was focusing first on the Middle East. Um, and then in my final year, I did an internship with the International Institute of Counterterrorism here in Israel, and I began. It was in 2020, and I think we remember what was going on in 2020. And I began to research the far right and far and how the far right was discussing the COVID virus on these deep and dark web forums. So I had to learn how to, I downloaded Tor, the Onion browser, learned how to navigate that, um, had to buy a fake German mobile number on with Bitcoin so that I could join their Telegram groups without them having my real information um, and started to infiltrate these uh, communities and, you know, pull, extract intel from what they were discussing in their you know, incitements to terror, which was definitely going on a lot throughout the George Floyd protests in 2020. And um, I was doing all this manually. I'm reminded of the moderators for social media who have to wade through image after image of pornography or text after text of hateful content so that they can block that content from reaching a wider audience. I mean, someone has to do it. And we see from Twitter right now what happens when those people are fired and when those teams are dissolved. That extremist content starts bleeding out of our social media platforms. On the dark web, Delilah was doing all this manually, joining forums, following trails, and then she found out it could all be automated. And towards the end of my internship, I was discussing what I was doing with a friend of mine who said, oh, but... There's a company that my friend works at called Cyber Six Skill, and they do everything that you're doing, but manual. It's like a Google for the deep and dark web. And I was like, excuse me, <laughs> how does that work? Um, but interestingly, the digital enablement of it all, the far right, in fact, white supremacists in the United States were the earliest adopters of the internet. The Ku Klux Klan had some of the first bulletin boards that existed on the web before the web was even the World Wide Web. So um, this nexus of communication, the collapse of international borders and the hub allowing people to communicate without being traced or located really provides the perfect way for someone to be pulled down into the rabbit hole and to begin being indoctrinated by propaganda. To think that we're now being exposed to radicalization on the clear internet, I had no idea that the KKK was an earlier adopter of the dark web. And I'm assuming that in Europe and other places, the far right have embraced that as well. Well, you know, this goes back to my background. I'm happy to, to let you know from my, from my research. Interestingly, what's happened with the far right, and I actually wrote a paper on this um, with the International Institute of Counterterrorism back when I was uh, researching and doing, as, working as a research analyst there. And that's that the far right has embraced what's called the leaderless resistance which is a like Leninistic concept, um, vanguardism, and um, was initially promoted by Lewis Beam, who was an ex-KKK member, who said organizations, the organizational hierarchy will be our downfall because if they figure out who the leader is, they can topple it and then we're able to be um, taken down. But if there's no leader and there's no organizational hierarchy and we're unified by ideology rather than an organization with a doctrine, then no one can stop us because we're just a group of lone wolves that are carrying out these, you know, attacks, I guess, in the name of ideology. And the internet became the means through which that ideology was spread. And the internet essentially became the central um, nucleus of the far right and the way that they actually promote their ideology, radicalize others into the same type of 
um, belief system. There are also many different types of manifestation of far-right ideology, but they all center around similar concepts and conspiracies. Um, but it's very interesting to see how the internet has emerged as pretty much the main organizing factor and particularly the deep and dark web. Um, and now with access into all these different forums and groups and multiple different platforms, um, we're able to see it in real time, how these groups are radicalizing, inciting terror um, without me having to go and manually look for all these different sort of items. It's right in front of our face and it's very obvious and very evident how um, powerful these under this underground ecosystem is so there's there's the there's the cyber criminal underground ecosystem there's the you know far rightist underground ecosystem there's you know conspiratorial underground ecosystems and they're all sort of like interconnected in some way some of them are, co are completely separate but it's very different difficult to be able to navigate you know where to go in order to find these different sources to be able to really get that critical intel to either prevent the ne next attack whether it's a physical terrorist attack or a you know a shooting um, like the incel community is another like community that exists very much on the underground. Um, we've heard there's been a few, a couple of attacks early this year in the States with that being a main sort of source of the, of the reason why that attack was taken out. Beyond the extremism, though, there's organized crime, which also uses distributed hierarchies, which also likes to hide in the shadows. So the dark web, well, it is the perfect location for that activity. Well, cybercrime and the cybercriminals are really the the kingpins of the underground because they know how to use it best. Cybercriminals that are sort of dipping their toes in cybercrime are getting, you know, the tools and the resources and the help that they need to, to gain their sophistication and to become more adept and um, expert at all of these tools and processes, et cetera, and uh, becoming more and more sophisticated and able to launch much more advanced attacks day by day. So the internet is a very interesting place. As I said, we often only hear of the dark web in association with Alpha Bay and Silk Road. Fortunately, these are few and far between. What I wonder, what is that day to day on the dark web really like? So my company collects on average about 10 million Intel items per day. So that's not just from the dark web, that also includes messaging platforms like Telegram or Discord or pay sites on the clear web. But the dark web is pretty much a complex ecosystem of communities, platforms, and communication centers. So there are these markets, like the ones that you've described, which are now since defunct, closed, and of course, when one falls down, a few more pop up in its place. Um, to sell those markets you were discussing are mostly for drugs or other illicit um, substances. There are also markets for weapons and markets for hacking tools and markets for everything that you could possibly imagine. Um, but it's also forums and platforms where cyber criminals share, transact the illicit tools, goods, services, um, resources that they need to launch their attacks. So in gathering all this intelligence, then what is the output? In other words, bend it back to the business owner. How would a business benefit from all this knowledge? I like to say that cybersecurity, much like national security, you need to know what your adversaries are planning in order to appropriately defend against the attack. So you can't deploy your forces everywhere. That's impossible. You need to know what the enemy is planning, what the enemy, what their, what weapons they have, what kind of forces they're deploying, what do they know about what we're doing? They know our weak spots. What are their weak spots? What kind of arsenal do they have at their disposal? And what day, what time, which area are they planning to attack? That is the critical information that 
is using national intelligence to um, to defend against attacks and defend the nation. The same can the same must be said for cybersecurity. So you need to know what's going on behind enemy lines. If you're only reacting to an attack as it happens, you're always on the back foot, and you're never going to be able to actually really make sure you, your organization is protected. So what my company specializes in is providing that early indication of risk. We capture as soon as a cyber criminal lists a compromised access endpoint on the underground, um, on a dark web market forum, et cetera, we capture that. We can say and flag to that company, you're an endpoint connected to your organization has been um, compromised and it's now being listed for sale. We can then purchase it for them if the company so chooses, but they also get an alert with that information. They can put, they can protect and mitigate that threat accordingly, not waiting for the attack actually to happen. So give me an example or explain how a company's endpoint might end up on the dark web. What does that even look like? There are multiple different ways that a company and that an endpoint or a device could be compromised. So the company has multiple employees. A lot of them are doing are working from home some of the time. Each of them have their laptops and their own work devices. They might even be using the Google Drive or other types of um, workplace um, productivity apps on their phone. So there are all these devices that are connected, right? And every single employee, their device, their connection to that enterprise network is a potential um, vulnerability or that could be exposed to attack. So one way is a, through a, like standard phishing attack where an employee clicks on a malicious link that, or downloads, for example, a new producti productivity app, um, and then that unwittingly they compromise their computer, they continue on without knowing, working on their day-to-day -day without even knowing that their computer is being compromised. And then we say it pop up as a compromised endpoint potentially on wholesale access markets or um, it, the initial access broker markets, and then that provides cyber criminals with their first entry point to attack. Another way, the exploitation of software vulnerabilities. So um, software vulnerabilities refer to weaknesses in software product services that are used in the enterprise systems downloaded installed on the enterprise systems um and there are always updates so you might see that little update on the side of your computer whatever saying update version 2.56 and it says security patches and people think oh i don't care there's no new feature there's no nothing special for me to do to download that why would i update my computer and disrupt my work day and whatever else might be but actually those are really crucial because those security patches are patching these vulnerabilities, these weaknesses that have been found within that software, which can then be exploited by cyber criminals to gain access again to your systems and networks. Those are just two examples. Some of this intel is very interesting when it's viewed in aggregate. One of my colleagues wrote a report about middle of last year connecting these IAB markets, these initial access broker markets to ransomware attacks and what we found was that almost 20% of all ransomware attacks in 2021 had their um their had access to their organization compromised just 180 days beforehand. So, or within 180 days beforehand. So if you know what's happening, if you know where you need to defend before the attack actually happens, you're able to be more proactive, preemptive, and just make sure that your defenses are fully armed where they need to be. You need to be able to focus your time, your effort, your resources where they matter most, because otherwise you're just flailing. There's too many things to protect. Digitization has created this you know, massive amount of assets, networked assets that potentially expose the organization to risk. If you don't even know where all these assets are, you don't know where all of your externally facing assets are, that you never know that you have them, your IT security team isn't even managing them then you don't know where there could be a potential exposure that could be the entry point 
for a cyber criminal to attack your organization. Without that visibility and the insight into what cyber criminals are actually doing and saying on the underground, your chances of protecting yourself adequately are pretty low, I would say. Over the years, I've worked with and talked with people who monitor activities in the dark web. One of the ways that they gather their intelligence is through chats and forums that they participate in. Given that she started out doing this manually, I wondered how Delilah was able to listen to the dark web today. Our company was founded based on patent technology using automation to automatically infiltrate and spread across these deep and dark web chats network systems. So what you'll find when you're on the dark web or deep web and dark web is deep web being, for example, the telegram groups or discord or those kind of things. That's instant messaging groups by definition, deep web, um, as opposed to the dark web forums and marketplaces where you need to be using that specialized browser I mentioned earlier. So they all sort of link into one another. I saw this on this one, or here's a link to another um, chat, or I mentioned this on this forum earlier, or whatever that might be. Um, so they all sort of discuss and interlink with one another, and there might be an actor that's active in three forums, and we can see this it's the same actor with using the same alias across those three forums. But we our using automation, most most of our competitors are using human analysts to be infiltrating collection from these systems. Our intelligence collection team, as opposed to our services team, which is another body entirely, is only five people. Five people. Their job is to make sure that our um, automation is working properly to be able to spread our little um, spiders across these sources, infiltrate new sources. We add new sources all the time, every day. Um, we refresh these sources, make sure that they're still updated, they're still active. Um, and we have by far the largest source base on the market by virtue of these automated processes. If learning about activities on the dark web is one part of the problem, the other side of the problem is collecting the intelligence. I mean, mining the web for actionable intelligence is one thing, but what about all that output? Delilah mentions that things in the workplace have gotten a lot more digital since COVID. That means there's a lot more information to gather. When I first came into the company, it was right in the wake of COVID. Um, we saw how remote work had a massive effect on not only work life and just the global society as a, as a whole, but also on the way that um, we operate in terms of our remote work. Remote work has become part of our daily life. Um, remote work and all these rapid digitization processes where companies realize that they had to be digital in order to be functioning in today's world. You cannot be um, still using analog systems anymore. Everything's got to be digital. Everything's got to be available on an app, on the cloud, wherever. Uh, what's happened is that it's led to a proliferation of these assets um, that nobody has control over anymore. Um, and not only that, but sort of losing control over the network perimeter, unable to see these external assets that are connected. Um, we're releasing very shortly um, our attack surface management module within our investigative portal, which sort of unifies these two critical components, which is the attack surface management allows you to sort of wrap your arms around the perimeter and really understand your attack surface from A to B, and then also tie that in with our cyber threat intelligence. So using that to tie in together to give you hyper-focused threat intelligence specifically tailored to your organization, because there's so much threat intelligence data out there. It's overwhelming. It's the information we're getting from so many people in the industry, they don't know what to do with all the feeds, the alerts, whatever. It's too much. It's overwhelming. They're already overwhelmed with the existing work that they have in their teams. What, we're, what we've realized by talking 
to um, customers and other people in the industry is that people need hyper-personalized threat intelligence. And it just wasn't something they've been getting thus far. And we've been doing our best to get us there um, with our existing threat intelligence module, but with attack surface management incorporated in it to act as a filter for the massive quantities of threat intelligence that we already have, we're able to give the most prioritized, hyper-focused, hyper-refined threat intelligence that is specific to that organization's attack surface needs, assets, et cetera, um, and really help organizations prioritize where to be focusing their time and their resources, which are also in today's economy, very important and need to be um, put in the right places in order to maximize productivity and optimize security at the same time. So hopefully with this, we're going to be making a lot of lives easier within our industry. And um, we'll be really looking forward to hearing the feedback from our customers, which is the most important part in our product roadmap. ChatGPT, you really can't avoid it, it seems. Everyone from Microsoft to your local deli is talking about it. Here's the BBC. ChatGPT, maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready, because this promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. It is the embryonic version of online artificial intelligence, the early frontrunner that reportedly has just secured a $10 billion shot in the arm from Microsoft. It is then the new frontier for the tech giants. The initials GPT stand for Generative Pre-trained Transformers. It automatically answers questions based on written prompts. You do not need to be a techie to use this. We're seeing the rise of ChatGPT and other AI systems being used by potential adversaries as well. In the report that I've written, The State of the Underground, which sort of gives an overview of what's been going on on the deep and dark web in 2022 and a little bit into 2023. And we intentionally made it a little bit into 23 because when I saw what was going on with ChatGPT and the other AI, um, generative AI sort of technologies that are coming out, I said, I think we should push this a little bit more so we can analyze this and include this because I feel like it's a really important thing to discuss. And I know that many of your listeners, especially the highly technical listeners, might be rolling their eyes a little bit because ChatGPT has been very much, you know, spoken about in the media. It's dominated the headlines and people are sort of bored of hearing about it. But let me tell you, what we're seeing on the underground is concerning. So obviously we know that ChatGPT can generate and emulate human speech which makes it very um, promising for cyber criminals that are not native English speakers to be crafting far more convincing phishing and spear phishing emails. I had ChatGPT um, pretend to be my boss um, to send a follow-up email to my teammates and ask them to put two days aside for a planning meeting and it sounded exactly like my boss and it would have convinced every single person on the team if I hadn't told them that it was an email that was generated by ChatGPT. Um, and of course, OpenAI, understanding the potential abuses of this, of this model, has put in these um, protective mechanisms. But it's not only speech or written text that ChatGPT can do. We're seeing cyber criminals use ChatGPT to create scripts for dark web marketplaces, to write scripts for malware. Oh. So that's interesting. Now generative AI can produce malware, or can it really? I had ChatGPT write me a keylogging malware, not using that prompt, 
they didn't it didn't write me a keylogging malware when I asked it straight up. But when I crafted it a little bit more cunningly, as was recommended to me by a cyber criminal in one of the forums that we uh, monitor, it ended up producing a keylogging malware. Now I haven't checked it out. I don't know if it works, so I can't confirm that it's all working a-okay. But it said at the end, note, this is for educational purposes only. But it still wrote me a script. And if even if it wasn't working, I'd probably be able to still use ChatGPT to refine and see what wasn't working for it. So what I've done in the report, which I'm really excited about actually, is I've gone through after spending a long time with ChatGPT. I spent a long time talking to the algorithm, reminding it what its purpose was, reminding it what I was trying to do by writing the report. I ended up working out how ChatGPT can automate and streamline and optimize pretty much the entire pre-ransomware attack chain um, and wrote very clearly what the task was and what ChatGPT could do to help cybercriminals actually complete that task. So if it's using ChatGPT to pretend to be a, tell it to role play as a pen tester, it can scan for exposed vulnerabilities like we discussed earlier. Where are the vulnerabilities in this system? I can ask ChatGPT to write me a very convincing spear phishing email targeting specific employee. I can have it write me a keylogging malware, another info stealer, or other sorts of malware. So effectively, ChatGPT could be used to disguise tools being used today for specific malware. But could it also launch specific ransomware attacks? If we go further down the ransomware attack chain, this is where it becomes a little bit more complicated. You need to be very, you already need to know what you're asking ChatGPT for it to be able to produce for you what you would like it to. So it's not the ChatGPT can then in on its own launch a ransomware attack end to end. There needs to be a cyber criminal there, an advanced cyber criminal, a technical cyber criminal there, carefully wording the prompts, making sure and also bypassing the restrictions, which is something that we're seeing that cyber criminals are also doing on the underground using either the API or other sorts of um, techniques to bypass the protective mechanisms that OpenAI have put on ChatGPT to then be producing scripts, um, all sorts of other sort of components of the ransomware attack chain that could then sort of optimize processes, streamline operations, and as you said, automation, but for the for the bad guys. So it seems that from the law enforcement side, the side of good, that there might be a degree of uh, chasing ghosts that law enforcement might be sifting through the various pieces of AI-generated evidence until they actually get to that human being that's orchestrating it? Well, in some capacity, yes. But as I said, ChatGPT is a tool. It's not going to be doing it on its own. We're not going to be seeing ChatGPT launch a ransomware attack simply by cybercriminal saying, putting in a prompt, ChatGPT, please launch a ransomware attack against Organization X. It's it's simply a optimizing tool that would help the cyber criminals that are already doing these jobs to be able to do it better. And what's more concerning from my perspective is that it's allowing these less technical, less expert, less sophisticated cyber criminals do the attacks that they wouldn't have been able to do before. So it's allowing um, the novice cyber criminals to break into cybercrime at a much easier, faster pace. So my concern is that we've already been seeing that the barriers of entry to cybercrime have been collapsing over the past years with the initial access broker markets and as a service offerings. And ChatGPT and AI, the democratization of AI, which is free for everybody to be using, um, 
it's completely erased from my perspective or is erasing the barriers of entry to cybercrime, allowing almost any wannabe cybercriminal to complete attacks that beforehand were only able to be conducted by these really expert, highly sophisticated cybercriminals. So might all this AI-generated evidence change the indicators of compromise, the so-called fingerprints? Exactly right. So just by asking ChatGPT to rewrite, to change a single component within a script or a malware, it sort of makes it more difficult to track. So it does, the malware does the same purpose by changing a single little line of code. It makes it more um, easy for cybercriminals to bypass these security mechanisms that are intended to detect this malware and flag it. Um, in firewalls or other similar systems. So yes, it is concerning and we need to continuously be in inside the underground. We can't be waiting for the indicators of compromise to show up within our system. Delilah mentioned postponing her report and wanting to get some analysis in on GPT. January was a time period when the mainstream media picked up on it. I'm wondering though, how early was Delilah seeing evidence of GPT on the dark web? Immediately, as in again, we can't identify specifically which other malware strains that have been created using ChatGPT. What I can tell you is that cybercriminals are talking about it excessively. Immediately, um, I would say towards mid-December, we were already seeing a lot of get-rich-quick schemes using ChatGPT um, with various different sort of tactics. Some of them is, you know, um, taking freelance work from Fiverr and sort of having a fake CV it might be um, hacking um, gaming sites or gaming platforms or um, digital gambling platforms to sort of rig the game in your favour. Um, but immediately after that, we also started seeing cybercriminals talking about how ChatGPT, as I mentioned earlier, can actually create a dark web website um, or a dark web marketplace that accepts cryptocurrencies. And cybercriminals are also speaking about how ChatGPT can write you or fix your malware. Um, with detailed tutorials, really detailed tutorials. They're all, most of these tutorials are actually free. Um, no one's offering them at a price. I mean, I did see a report by another cybersecurity firm sort of talking about these tutorials being offered at a price, and I'm sure they are, but I'm also sure that no cybercriminals are buying them because there are so many tutorials already available that are completely free, just discussions happening on, on the forums and marketplaces and other discussion centres in the deep and dark web about how you can... Uh, exploit ChatGPT or, in their words, abuse ChatGPT in order to um, fast-track and streamline their cybercriminal activities. So we've talked about how both criminals and extremists use the dark web. I'm kind of wondering, though, what the percentages might be? I mean, how biased is it in one direction or the other? Well, it's difficult to say definitively. Um, the advanced persistent threat groups, APTs, which are typically associated with nation states, are the most dangerous and most sophisticated and most uh, worrisome cyber criminal groups out there. Um, and they are. there are many of them that are sponsored by um nation states and that have the support and the help of nation states, or at least they are acting um, with the authorization, even if it's implicit by nation states. Um, it is very difficult to uh, to tell sometimes because a lot of the times these, these groups do work for profit um, in order to sort of cover the tracks of the real intention. 
Um, there's a lot of cyber espionage going on. We were concerned at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine con uh, conflict war last year. A lot of people thought that an all-out cyber war was going to be blowing out because of, you know, the massive uh, cyber cyber sphere presence of the war. There was like the war was happening on multiple arenas, the physical battlefield, the media battlefield, and, of course, the cyber battlefield. And we saw how that was manifesting as well. Um, my colleagues have written multiple reports on it. There was also one that just came out um, a couple of weeks ago about um, giving a summary of the Russia-Ukraine war thus far on the cyber criminal underground. What we found was that Telegram became a major hub. But these are the groups that are most concerning, the nation states. Again, this that particularly isn't my area of uh, expertise simply because it is such a mammoth thing to be trying to wrap your arms around with so much secrecy and so much obfuscation and so much sophistication, but it's difficult to know the percentage. And this is why the proactive preemptive threat intelligence from my perspective is so critical um, in order to sort of understand where you potentially are exposed and protect that part before you're actually attacked there. Know what tools and what are the tactics, tools and procedures that cyber criminals are using in your industry or geography or whatever it might be and know how to defend against it. Um, understand what's going on in the cyber criminal underground. By having that understanding, by having that insight, you're able to preempt the attack rather than waiting for it to strike. We always know that preemptive defense is the best form of cybersecurity. By waiting for someone to hit you, ultimately you're going to get hit. Um, you've got to take a step forward and be looking proactively in order to actually stop it before it strikes. Delilah is a rare breed. She's someone who is very articulate in explaining matters such as the dark web and extremism. That's actually my personal passion, I have to say. I think that I, I'm not cyber, um, I'm not a technical person by any capacity. I cannot script, I cannot code. I, you know, got into this because I'm interested in the cyber arena and the nexus of extremism and um, nefarious sort of activities and internet digitization enablement sort of components of that all. But I feel like these are topics that need to be understood by a wider audience. And I'm passionate about making this cyber speaks stuff that's usually um, only directed at this technical audience. I want to open that conversation up because that's why we're still getting attacked. That's why your mum is getting a phishing email and she's going, oh, I got this nice email. Someone's offering me a gift card. I might just click on that. And then oh, mum's been compromised or, you know, employees that don't quite have enough cyber awareness are getting compromised and people are left, right and centre getting their personally identifiable information leaked. Um, this is a really important topic. It's something that the world needs to understand. The world, layman people that don't that don't operate in the cyber industry need to be able to understand. So I want to make cyber speak accessible to a non-technical audience. I'd like to thank Delilah for coming on the show and talking about the real dark web. Often there's this romanticized view about what it is, and I, I think the facts are actually much more interesting. And finding out about the extremism and the criminal underground from someone who's actually seen it play out is pretty revealing and pretty interesting. The Silk Roads and the Alpha Bays, they're just the top of the iceberg. There's so much under the water that we need to understand and know. And that's why research such as what Delilah is working on is so important to understanding what's going on with the criminal underground today and how they are, in fact, using the dark web. And also how generative AI actually works in the underground and what it can and cannot do. I think it'll be interesting in the next few years to see how this really plays out.
Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world, and I don't want you to miss out. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.